Everybody wants to talk about ESG these days, and my guest is no different, Michael Rodriguez, head of ESG and sustainability at Academy Securities. Mike, welcome. Thanks for being on. Stuart, thank you so much, sir, for the invitation. An honor to be here. Thank you. And my name is Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast, and we are here with a very different kind of guest. You and I came to know each other through a good friend of mine named Randy Lauer, who recently joined your firm from a large Wall Street sell-side shop, and he made me aware of Academy Securities. What is Academy Securities and what do you do? Well, sir, you know, again, thank you. And you know, you answer your question, Academy Securities is a Hispanic minority and service-disabled veteran-owned and operated investment bank. I myself am for a veteran and work on our firm as our head of ESG and sustainability and also on our debt capital markets and syndicate team. But what's you know, really unique about our firm was it was founded over 10 years ago by two Naval Academy veterans with a mission to mentor and train military service members for careers in financial services. And over the past 10 years, it's continued to develop. Our missions continue to grow. And we now have a very robust suite of investment banking services and capabilities include our debt and equity capital markets underwriting distribution. We're our top performer among our DNI peer groups. We also have a best in class rates and liquidity team responsible for our US Treasury agency and commercial paper trading. In addition, we have public finance, leverage finance, structured products, capabilities, and cash management. So we are a strong shop. We are very aspirational and really aim to to punch above our weight class, but one of our real chief differentiators is our geopolitical intelligence group and our advisory board, which is comprised of over 14 former U.S. military admirals and generals. These are folks with and individuals with expertise in issues of national security, ranging from regional specific expertise on a particular nations or regions, as well as cybersecurity, supply chain, government procurement, space, and really everything in between. And this is a capability and service that we provide for free and something our clients find extremely helpful as it's a really unique perspective than what might be delivered in the news media or other information flows. So it's a, a phenomenal team to work for. We are in fact a team of former military and Wall Street financial services professionals. And again, like I said, 45% of our team are former military. That is with our mission to mentor, train, and hire military veterans that we take very seriously and integrate throughout all of those verticals I had just mentioned. For instance, our commercial paper team. You know, when we had first started out, it was over half military, half career financial services professionals. Our debt capital markets team is predominantly military veterans. So we really try to integrate this throughout every portion of our business. And it's also a wonderful value add for our clients that you have not only you know your bankers, but they also are foreign militaries and have a different perspective and insight. And that's something that we can provide to our clients and our stakeholders and something that they also find real value in as well. So it's a real honor to be a part of the team and within my specific role is helping out, you know, our issuers, stakeholders out there better understand what we're seeing in the sustainable investment and financial space. And that's specifically a lot of what we're talking about is capital raising, ways of developing ESG frameworks so you can go out there and issue a green bond and, you know, capture that investor interest and ideally, you know, beneficial pricing if that, if there's an ability to. But I, I, I'd say that 
is the 10,000 foot overview and happy to, to answer some more questions on that if you'd like, Stuart. So you're a Marine, right? We talked about this because when Randy first introduced this idea of you and I having a podcast together, you and I talked briefly, right? And you have a very unique background and you come at ESG and sustainability from a very different place than most people. So can you just give a quick run through your military background? And then I want to go into how your education and the path it led you down and how you got where you are today. Absolutely. Like you had mentioned, I was in the Marine Corps. I actually come from a, a family career military service members. So actually most of them were Coast Guard. So I ended up wanting to do something a little different and went in the Marine Corps as an infantry rifleman where I served, this would be over almost 17 years ago in the Operation Phantom Fury as an infantry rifleman. So in Fallujah of 2004 and in November of 2004, responsible for going through house to house, making sure weapons weren't stored and that if there were any sort of, you know, threat actors or, or terrorists or anything like that, that were in the area that, you know, the situation was contained. I was actually injured in that flight on Thanksgiving day of 2004 and it was medically retired from the Marine Corps. And from since then, over 17 years ago, a lot of what I focus on almost entirely my areas of research and work have been on issues related to, I guess you could say, sustainability. And initially that was water stress and management, how the military, that affects the military's operations and specifically munitions development and storage and how water stress impacts bullets for all intents and purposes. You know, I carried that work on in DC, national security and climate change, and continued to do the same throughout my graduate degree work before I began here at Academy. But my initial career when I started was uh, as a Marine. And as they say, you know, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine and very much sort of draw back from that, you know, those experiences and those frameworks for of learning and, and analysis and what I do today. That's fantastic because I, I wanted to get that out there because your background is substantially different than most of the people who we have on as guests. And so given that your background's different, I guess the first place to start is what does ESG and sustainability mean to Mike Rodriguez? That's a great question. I, I think I should be able to, to give you, I think, a very clear and succinct answer. You know, when I think of sustainability, often what I go back to is a report that was written over 20 years ago called the Brundtland Report or Our Common Future. And it simply states sustainability or sustainable development, in fact, because it's actually a lot about development, is about how we develop now without compromising the opportunity of future generations, our children and grandchildren, to also develop. So, you know, what ways can we continue to do business without, you know, developing so many negative externalities out there that those in the future are going to be extremely hard for them to or be much more costly? And... That same report, the Brooklyn report, is actually what the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals really draw upon and um, other issuers sort of will align their capital plans with. But I look at ESG because that's it's a little bit easier to say than sustainability is really the submetrics for how we look to assess and value what sustainability is or what a sustainable investment might be. And so I guess we have this broad goal, this end goal of sustainability that is might even be a little esoteric and nebulous, but ESG 
the metrics for how we can measure that are a little bit more concrete. So when we look at sustainability, you know, we might be talking about climate change, water stress management, as well as you know, inclusion and equity, especially when we talk about you know, certain underserved populations. How are we measuring tangible measurements there that we can ensure we're getting towards sustainability versus just saying we're doing something and maybe not making the headway? And that would, you know, and that's something that a lot of people are very cognizant of. Nobody, you know, we call this greenwashing. Nobody really wants to be a part of that. But I really look at ESG as the metrics for how we measure that out. And of course, you know, there's, it's important to also look at what are the macro drivers behind this? We have global population, technology, demographics. You know, these are the three big things that folks at the UN as well are considering when they're thinking about sustainable development. And when you consider climate change in that, you know, deforestation. So what numbers, maybe data points can we use to ensure that we're on this right path that ensures that those who are coming after us have the same opportunities that those of us have today. And I think that's what a lot of sustainability and ESG is about. And a lot of companies now you know, when they're thinking about the long term, you know, this is something that they now have to consider. And, you know, it's in the past three years, you've seen some phenomenal growth. But when I really look at what ESG means, it's the path towards sustainability. And that path is something that you need to be able to measure, monitor and report on. So that way you're getting to that head goal and maybe not getting, you know, sidetracked or not making the headway that you want. It's also important to understand for a lot of what we're talking about related to climate change, you know, they have these 2030 and 2050 climate scenarios. And if you're not sort of properly measuring, then when you hit these milestones, you know, how are you sure that you're on the right path and pacing correctly? So I look at ESG as how we, for all intents and purposes, how we measure sustainability. I think it's a very interesting way to look at it, to link the two in that way. And so, I mean, given the fact that most of our audience are insurance investment professionals or actively involved in that space, can you talk a little bit about ESG and insurance from your perspective? There are a number of risks and data metrics and whatnot, but how do you consider the two, ESG and insurance? So, I mean, insurance is just, it's a very integral portion of how we look to finance. And I think the liquidity within our broader markets, you know, when we're thinking about risk, you know, what insurance do you have? What sort of hedge do you have in place? And so a lot of insurance is about how you're managing this risk. And I think, you know, there's a couple of ways we can think about risk. And uh, using an example of climate change, I think you have these two areas. So when you're looking at maybe your general account and your investments that are in it, specifically maybe around climate risk and ESG, you know, you're gonna be primarily, you're gonna to wanna to look at not just the physical risk of your asset, you know, which is maybe a house or a building or a property, you know, something like weather is gonna impact that, you know, increased damage costs related to extreme weather related events. But you also have this whole other area of transition risk, which is how is the, investments valuation going to react to this changing environment. And those things are like policy, technology, and behavior are really some of those drivers behind transition risk. And I think that's important for insurance companies, especially to be cognizant of. 
as I said, the insurance injury is critical to liquidity. So having a sound understanding of where ESG risks lay within a portfolio and how to manage those, I think will be really important. From a climate perspective, this is something I think that the SEC, as well as, you know, the Federal Reserve have their eye on, and it's, you know, climate-related financial stress testing. And I think in the future, what for insurance especially, you know, you might see some more of this. Uh, I think with insurance right now, they represent about 12% of the $2 trillion in assets here in the U.S. that are using have ESG commitments or screening or embedded mechanisms. So for insurance companies, I think it's a lot of how they look to maybe not transform investment analysis and risk, but look to for it to sort of evolve and adapt to this new, you know, changing, literally, you know, changing climate from a, both a weather perspective, but also other perspectives. We now have, you know, cybersecurity. We're talking, we have a lot more people on the earth to consider. So I think that's going to be important for them. And I think going into this for insurance companies, what's this going to mean when you start to consider all of this data that's going to have to come into play? Also, you know, maybe legal sense around fund marketing and and the sales of products as it relates to sustainability. But I'd say for a lot for for the general accounts out there, insurance, especially maybe who might use any sort of third-party managers, if something like a climate-related financial stress testing comes into play, it's going to be important that those third-party managers have expertise on climate-related investments or ESG, just because given these net zero alignments, this is slowly becoming less of an option. And asset managers will have to put in place, whether it's governance standards, certainly science-based targets will be one of them, the relevant metrics, as well as monitoring or reporting. This will all come into play. And I think that will be important for insurance companies to have in mind and and look to consider in the next coming years, especially as we approach 2030 and then 2050 with these net zero commitments. But it's, I think a lot for insurance companies, it's going to be around, it's going to be that now that using these new, maybe traditionally non-financial data points as ways of adapting and transforming their analysis and risk management within their portfolio. Can you talk a little bit, and, and I think, you know, there's challenges, right? I mean, you mentioned it when you were talking about ESG and sustainability. It's not like I can get a scale out and measure it to an eighth of a pound, right? I mean, it's challenging to put metrics around this. And I think everybody wants that score. So there's definitely challenges out there in in ESG investing as, you know, clear standards are being developed. How do you see the differences in those challenges, U.S. versus the EU, for example? I think one of the big challenges, one is the EU is, you know, a couple of steps ahead on this, at least in terms of codifying some of the language for finance and investment around sustainability and ESG. But I think it's going to be that interoperability. And I think right now it's, you know, primarily the U.S. and EU, but eventually it'll become APAC as well. And I think that what nobody wants is a system where you have three or four different big standards in place and you each have to cater to each one of those. And then at the same time, there might be overlapping components. So I think that is what people want interoperability and they don't want to add on another 
survey into the work that they're doing, especially, you know, asset managers who are often being, you know, asked for a lot of this information. You know, I don't think we shouldn't be going out of their way to, to make anybody's job more difficult. And I think this is something that's going to be, might be a bit of a, a learning curve going forward. But I think right now in the EU, we have Article 8 and 9, which lay out some pretty, pretty sound language on, you know, what is considered maybe a, a transition fund, what is, you know, a sustainable fund and the marketing around that. The U.S., we're just, I think, starting to, to come to that. The SEC recently has put some letters out to issuers asking, you know, some more information on climate-related financial disclosure and materiality, because this is something that's often talked about is a company might say, you know, they do a 30-page sustainability report, and they talk about how, you know, SASB or the Values Reporting Foundation has indicated that this is a material issue, and they report it on their sustainability report, but don't mention this material point within their 10Ks or any of their quarterly releases, with whether that's in the management discussion analysis. So I think it's going to be a lot, there's going to be some disclosure work there, but ultimately, I think with it, when we're thinking about ESG and data, there's just so much of it. And there's really no one source you can go to. A lot of what's being pulled, you know, might come from a company. You know, if you're an ESG rating entity, you might be looking at what a company says and then what maybe a, a government source and then another third party source. There's no one place to go to. And there, that leads to perhaps some, I think, some issues within the quality and transparency of the data that remains. You know, for example, just a lot of climate change data says not released quarterly like financial data is. So to have a better idea of per se your, it might be a say your environmental capital and your budget around your environmental capital, that flow of information is going to need to be more update. But I think between the US, the EU and APAC, and it's going to be important that to some degree that everyone's sort of on the same page or else it's going to be a lot of, there'll be some inconsistency and just friction within reporting. And it just goes back to wanting to avoid, you know, what they often dub just greenwashing, which is, you know, going out and saying, hey, I'm doing this, it's good, but in reality, it isn't quite having the impact that you're saying it is, or it's just not having an impact at all, or maybe even worse, it's having a negative impact. So I think what the challenge ahead is, how do we have interoperability, avoiding erroneous or extraneous ESG data reporting that might not be critical to a certain business or business line. That's very helpful. So you mentioned this a little earlier on the podcast. How do or do ESG and cyber risk, how are they related based on your viewpoint? I think cyber actually is sort of, it can be lumped into almost two buckets. And it's what I often see is some folks will put it in the and maybe that social component, and others might put it in that governance component. It lives in between. But really, cybersecurity, when we look at it, it almost might be better to look at it as a whole, maybe, and this is very, this is a bit different, but almost as its own environment. When you look at it as its own ecosystem, very similar to how we look at our physical environment and the ways we want to invest into in a climate change, we need to be looking at this digital environment that we operate in, which has now become, you know, you and I were doing this phone call digitally. People do a lot of their finances digitally. Banks and, you know, healthcare 
institutions and organizations are some of the most targeted of these. People are just, you know, want access to this information. And at the same time, this environment that all of this information and this data is flowing through, a lot of the people who are using it, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I am not a an IT expert. So if there's an issue, I'm going to have to troubleshoot it. Or maybe if there's something that is going on behind the scenes, many people don't quite have maybe the expertise to go in, figure that, that out and or build their own secure network or the like. And so right now we have everyone who's plugged in and to some degree has a target on their back. So no matter who you are, there's this, you are now plugged into this ecosystem that opens you up to both state and non-state threat actors. And I think that's something that's just really important to think about because there's so much that now relies on our digital infrastructure and networks. And it's not just communication. It's not just video games. We Earlier this year was, you know, we had the Colonial Pipeline. We've had the solar winds. And then just this week, I believe it's called the Log4JT where they went in and they realized part of the Java script that's used to, you know, help program all this software had a major flare or had a major issue with it. So this is, you know, something that they now have to go back in and rework and reinvest into making new apps. So I think it's something that we just really need to be hyper-focused on and looking almost at the cybersecurity and network security on the same level that we think about climate change or water stress and management or diversity and inclusion, just because so much is just centered on that. You know, I remember reading this a while ago, it was a statistic about the amount of money that flowed across a silicon microchip. And I guess, you know, back in the seventies, it was less than 10% of the economy sort of went across silicon chips. And by the end of the eighties, it was, you know, around 50 or something greater. And then by like the, the 90s, you know, we're talking or late 90s, 2000s, over 80% of the global economy is reliant upon these sort of silicon microchips to operate. So every year you have a silicon microchip, that is, that's a digital network, you know, a place that, you know, a threat actor, you know, if it's plugged in, maybe from somewhere around the world, if, you know, they're savvy and smart enough, could go in and look to reach in maybe glean, you know, they're going to go in there, breach something, just look and see how it operates. Maybe they'll extract some information or they'll lock it down and then charge you ransomware for it. But I think ultimately we need to be thinking about the cybersecurity as this ecosystem that to invest in the same way that we're looking at climate change or waste disposal or diversity and inclusion, just because of so much that is relying on that. And then going back to the social component, because I think there is a social component here, and that is there's data and information belonging to all of us on there. I think one of the most, I could only imagine, you know, folks who might have the ability or resources to rebound from maybe a data breach, but what about the folks out there who don't have the resources and maybe are the targets of ransomware and the underserved populations who maybe is data is now out there and makes them targets. So, you know, that data protection component, I think, is actually eats its way into the social bit of ESG and also maintains that kind of governance segment, too. But I think, really, cybersecurity is uh, its on top of mind of everybody. You're regularly speaking to people, and it's been something I have been very bullish on 
for about three years since I've been working with Academy was cybersecurity as an ESG risk and focus area for investment. It's really interesting. You've mentioned the term a couple of times while we've been on this podcast. Can you help those of us who are less familiar with this space? What do you mean when you say water stress? So, oh, water stress. Depending on, because certain governments might define drought or within different parameters, amount of water that you know falls within this time or doesn't land on the ground, is absorbed within this time. When we're, when we're thinking of water stress, we're looking at industries, regions, investments that might be, while 20 years ago, it was fine for them to be located or investment to be located in this particular region because maybe drought wasn't as much of a big issue or water stress wasn't. And what I mean by water stress, they come back, you know, that can be drought. It can be maybe too much water usage for the amount of water that's available. So you can have an area that might not be in a drought per se, but you have so many people using so much people or technology using the water that there's not enough available for everybody. So there's really a couple of ways you can cut it, but it's something that we are going to be running up against here soon. It's something that, you know, it's popped its head up a couple of times this year. I think specifically, you know, I, I do work a lot with some tech companies. So I look at what's been happening within the supply chain of the chip crunch shortage, which has been obviously driven by immense demand for these semiconductors, but also TSMC and out in Taiwan, they were coming up against the drought, which impacted their ability to put out these microchips. So they had to go in, do some basically water management work to put in efficiency measures, water waste disposal to make sure that, you know, whatever water that they're re-putting out there has been filtered, it's not contaminated. So that way, you know, other people can use it within the area or have access to it. What we've been seeing within the semiconductor space is also being mirrored elsewhere. And I think it's just important to keep that in mind because, you know, we don't actually have too much fresh water here on our planet. If we're going to go about ways of, you know, developing more, you then have to do salination, which is, a, again, going to increase the cost of water because it's very, that's a very energy intensive process. It also produces some pollutants, like a very toxic brine. So they have to then store that somewhere. So the best way when we're talking about water stress, especially here in the United States, which over the past few years has become increasingly more stressed as we see more development along rivers. So places like in the southern United States, Los Angeles and the such, your access to water is becoming less as more and more folks are developing in higher along, you know, further upstream. That's like one area. So it's you got a bunch of compounding issues going on. You have more folks maybe developing in areas, more types of technology that are using some more water, as well as simultaneously you know, climate change, which is for all intents and purposes, just reallocates where water is going. So climate change kind of takes water out of some areas and then dumps it more in others. And I, so when we're looking at climate change specifically and water stress, I think I've, you know, I've mentioned this to people before, you know, emissions is sort of your contribution to the problem. It's your contribution in a long-term sense, but the immediate impact that climate change has is on how water is managed and allocated. So for folks out there, you know, when we're really thinking about 
all right, well, how is climate going to impact me? Well, you can keep pumping emissions and emissions, and that's going to keep contributing the problem in the long term. But if you're not planning for how water is going to be allocated around you and your operations and your investments, then you're, you're missing half of the problem. You know, I think a great example of this is, you know, when we talk about physical and transition risk is the National Flood Insurance Program. You know, so that is one area where there actually might be a bunch more folks who should be a part of that, but because how we're tracking water and the like, they're not being included. So floods are one way, droughts another, but it's something that we really need to focus on because no matter what, regardless of your business and that you operate in, water is going to come into play, whether it's for the people and your labor or to develop your product, you know, water is going to be there. So it's very important that you consider that. And I think Aflac, who actually did a sustainability bond earlier this year, included that. And one of their use of proceeds was investments in facilities and equipment that reduce water consumption. And they specifically have some metrics that they provide for how they plan to track that. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. Uh, Eric Kirsch is the CIO there and, and a good friend and, and was on a webcast with us earlier this year, part of the CFA New York Asset Owner Series. So a small world. I appreciate you being on, man. I've had a really, a, there's a really unique view of ESG and sustainability. So uh, I've just got one more question for you, but I wanted to say thank you for the ESG portion. You're absolutely welcome, sir. What was your what was your last question, sir? Okay, so here's your last question, Mike. I want to take you back to a day that I'm confident that you'll recall. It is the day that you graduated from your undergraduate institution. Now, regardless of what sort of festivities may have taken place the evening before, you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for graduation. Your name starts with R, so you're kind of in the second half of the group going up. You've had to wait a while. You get up on the steps, you walk across, they call your name, the crowd goes crazy, right? You get your diploma, quick handshake, quick picture. And as you walk down the stairs, you run into Michael Rodriguez today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? That, that, that's, that's a great question, it's a Stuart. Great, it's a good question. <laughs> I would tell him to keep doing the path that he was on, I think. You know, actually look back uh, when my time in undergrad and, you know, we were just talking about water stress and management. That's where I was introduced and got fascinated with it. Is that right? That early back all the way back in undergraduate school, you're interested in this. And it's like I did my undergraduate work with and how munitions impact uh, or how water stress and management impacts munitions development. You know, how, how are bullets be made here in the United States impacted by water and how they impact water. That's actually a, you know, be a point we could always go further, double materiality. It's actually something that is become, is one of the big shifts that we've seen in ESG. So earlier, I think ESG was based a lot on values-based investing. I don't want to invest in things that maybe hurt people like guns or don't hurt the environment or like that. Now it's shifted to something a bit different, which is double materiality. So looking at an investment decision, how it weighs the impact of sustainability factors on the investment, as well as investments impact on sustainability factors. So that, that's how I got started. I 
you know, it's, it's been an interesting road from there, but I would just say keep doing what you're doing and eventually I ended up here in, in front of you on, on this podcast. So yeah, I, there I, you I are. wouldn't change it a bit of it. There you go. And you, this is your podcast debut and certainly I hope not your last time on. So, Mike, thanks for, thanks for being on, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, Stuart. And, you know, I just want to wish you and the team there the best. And, you know, you stay warm and toasty there in Chicago for me, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Michael Rodriguez, head of ESG and sustainability at Academy Securities. If you haven't heard of Academy, check them out. Very worth your time. If you have ideas for a podcast, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Thank you.